Hey everybody, and welcome to There and Back Again, an exploration of Tolkien's Middle-earth. I'm Alistair Stevens, and in tonight's 32nd inexplicably session of our show, we're going to leave behind the Shadow of Moria and venture onward toward Lothlorien, the dream blossom realm of the tree people, because it turns out that when you translate the Elvish directly into the common tongue, things get pretty weird pretty fast. You can leave your comments this evening and ask questions live in the YouTube chat if you are joining me here on this fine Thursday evening. Or after the fact, you can get in touch over on Twitter. You can uh, use the hashtag TABAGAIN, T-A-B-A-G-A-I-N to get in touch with me directly. I will see all of those messages. Or you can email pointnorthmedia at gmail.com and I can keep track <laughs> of all of them. Jenna, who's joining us for the first time in a while, says, I don't know about you, but I'm feeling thirsty. 32? Gosh, I remember feeling 32. Those were those were glorious good days, let me tell you. Okay. Uh, oh, Jennifer's asking, is that a Captain America shirt? Can I show you that there? Yes, it's a Captain America shirt. I don't often wear graphic tees, but when I do, they're Captain America shirts. That's what I'm doing. Just to, just to mix things up just a little bit. You will all be glad to know, particularly those of you who join me for the Point North Live Q&A every week, that today I splurged on a couple of sheets that, uh, a couple of sheets, excuse me, a couple of shirts that are neither brown, uh, now I can't speak English at all. I splurged on a couple of shirts that are neither blue nor gray. None of them are brown. I don't know where that came from at all, except that I've been thinking a lot about elves, you guys. Elves, sir. We're going to talk a lot about elves in tonight's reading. And this is an odd chapter because it is, in many ways, a transitional chapter between the events of Moria and, in a sense, our entire adventure from Rivendell and what comes next. We're going to spend a lot of time looking at Lothlorien, looking at the realm of the Lady Galadriel, and it is not necessarily an easy read. That is to say that it is not necessarily a simple read. It is not a straightforward read. There is a depth and a complexity to Lothlorien that it's very easy to miss. It's very easy to misunderstand exactly what is happening here, and the depth of the tragedy that we are about to see, the pain and the loss and the hurt of the elves' fate here in Middle-earth. We're going to really delve into that next week uh, as we finish up our, our adventures in Lothlorien, but this week we're going to do a lot to lay the foundation for those adventures. We're going to, of course, navigate once again this transition from the mundane realm into the fairy realm, though here we are on the eastern edge of the Misty Mountains and even the mundane realm isn't terribly mundane. We've still got time for a magical lake and a glimpse of a mysterious constellation heralding the return of Durin. We'll get to all of that. There's a lot happening in tonight's reading, and I've got a lot of slides, so we should push on pretty quick. Though first, of course, we should welcome Kendra. First time ever being able to join you in the live chat. I doubt I'll make it through, but glad to say hello. Welcome, Kendra. I hope you have a good time tonight. Jackie says in the YouTube chat, Lothlorien is so beautiful and heartbreaking, yes. And Jenna points out, yeah, I was surprised you didn't make this a twofer with the next chapter too. I thought a lot about it, and uh, this is a slightly longer chapter, so next week we're going to do two chapters. Next week we're going to do the Mirror, the mirror of Galadriel and then The Departure from Lothlorien. That's a pretty long read, but I like the way that this chapter works on its own terms, as it were. And this chapter is, is bracketed beautifully by two farewells from Aragorn, which... One of which we'll talk about right now, one of which we'll talk about in like 90 minutes from now if we make it that far. Hey, let's see what we can do to make that happen, shall we? Because we begin right at the beginning of the chapter as we leave behind, as I said, the shadow 
of Moria. Oh, and as Jackie says, we have songs, so this will take a while. Well, we have a song. We have Legolas's song, which I'm very interested to talk about. We're going to talk a little about Nimmerdale in just a while. Here we go, though, with our first slide. Alas, I fear we cannot stay here longer, said Aragorn. He looked toward the mountains and held up his sword. Farewell, Gandalf, he cried. Did I not say to you if you pass the doors of Moria, beware? Alas, that I spoke true. What hope have we without you? He turned to the company. We must do without hope, he said. At least we may yet be avenged. Let us gird ourselves and weep no more. Come, we have a long road and much to do. They rose and looked about them. Northward, the dale ran up into a glen of shadows between two great arms of the mountains, above which three white peaks were shining. Celebdil, Fenuathol, Carathras, the mountains of Moria. At the head of the glen, a torrent flowed like white lace over an endless ladder of short falls, and a mist of foam hung in the air about the mountain's feet. Yonder is the Dimral Stair, said Aragorn, pointing to the falls. Down the deep cloven way that climbs beside the torrent, we should have come if fortune had been kinder. Or Carathras less cruel, said Gimli. There he stands, smiling in the sun. He shook his fist at the furthest of the snow-capped peaks and turned away. I mean, first, of course, we have to just all take a moment to appropriately love Gimli shaking his fist at a distant mountain peak. Damn that, Carathras, for sending us on this fool's errand through the mines of Moria. What a dark journey it has been. I guess before we really plunge into tonight's reading, it would make a certain amount of sense. Let me... um switch out here to our interactive map of Middle-earth, courtesy of the uh, lotrproject.com, which I've shown you before and which is generally just fantastic. Here you can see the relationship between Lorien, the Misty Mountains, Moria itself. Here on the western flank of the Misty Mountains, you see the Gate of Moria. That's where we entered. The Gate stream there is the stream that feeds the lake in which we found the Watcher in the water. So we enter through the Gate of Moria on the western side. We pass pretty much straight east through the Mines of Moria, through Casa out to Miramir on the eastern flank here. Then we are going to trace the Silverlode all the way down toward the river Nimrodel and there into Lorien. It's going to be quite a journey. And we're not, we don't get every detail here, unfortunately. We don't get Karen Amroth, which is where we're going to conclude tonight's read. But that is a little northwest of Karas Galathon that you'll see there in the, south, uh, the southeastern tip of, of Lorien. So this gives us a rough sense. In fact, I can actually overlay on this. Thanks to the brilliance of the Lord of the Rings Project.com, L-O-T-R-Project.com, I can overlay this with the path taken by Frodo and Sam. Minor spoilers, don't look to the south. But here you can see our... Journey south from Rivendell, our misadventure up the flank of Carathras here, the journey south to the uh, to the westward gate of Moria, through Moria, out to Miramir, and onward southeast into Lorien. That's what we're going to discuss tonight. <laughs> Nikki says, someone explaining this with maps. Bless you, Alistair. I always want to try and explain this with maps when I can. And I have to say that finding maps of Lorien is very tough. That is not an easy thing to do. To the best of my knowledge, Tolkien never drew a detailed map of Lorien. So people have parsed it. People have kind of interpreted the text. And certainly the folks over at Lotro, at the Lord of the Rings Online, have done a great job of creating uh, a Lothlorien that is completely compelling and completely convincing, but it's also kind of bounded with mountains because of the concerns of the game. And it's, it's a little complicated. Yes. Yeah, so this is where we are. This is what we're doing. This is where we're going to cover. This is the ground that we are going to cover tonight. And as I said, we begin there with... Um, with Aragorn looking back at the mountains. Farewell, Gandalf. Did I not say to you, if you pass the doors of Moria, beware. Alas, that I spoke true. What hope have we without you? We've talked before about Aragorn's 
gift for prophecy and the way that prophecy works in general in the frame of the Lord of the Rings. And in order to understand prophecy, I think that we have to first acknowledge the origins of the world. And I've talked about this several times before, but in case you've never dipped into the Silmarillion, this world is created in the passage in the Silmarillion uh, entitled the Ainulindale, the Song of the Ainur. The, the world is created through the singing of a great song. The, the, the singing of a song is, is far too weak, in fact, to encompass it. But the composition of a great piece of music, uh, a host of heavenly voices arise together in concert and create the song of the universe. And when the song is done, God, Iluvatar, creates the world about which the song was sung. So all of history has kind of been covered up to a point. Iluvatar particular, uh, specifically kind of draws the vision to a close before we get to the age of man. So we're dealing with the kind of mythic antiquity of, of our own world here. And, and we don't really see what happens after that. But certainly this part of the world's history is plotted in the song specifically. So everything that will happen, in a sense, has happened, has been told. The story has already been told before the world comes into, into being. And Mitch asks the perfect question here in the YouTube chat. Are we supposed to understand Aragorn's prof uh, prophetic ability is due, to his, um, is due to his bloodline? And yes, kind of. But here's the thing. Aragorn is actually super bad at prophecies. He's right about Moria, and he will be right again once more in the course of the story. But both times, he will then call back to his original prophecy and say, Whoa, whoa, that I was correct. This is terrible. As he says here, Alas, that I spoke true. What hope have we without you? I warned you that this was going to happen, but how terrible is it that I was right? He takes no pleasure in it, and he certainly isn't sure about his prophetic ability. But yes, it does seem as though the men of Numenor have a hint of, of the song. We have a kind of um, a suggestion of the song. And it doesn't seem to be the case that the elves have a particular in with the Song of Iluvatar, because, of course, none of the elves were there when the Ainulindale was sung originally. None of the elves were there when the world was created. They're immortal, but not that kind of immortal, if you see what I mean. But the wise, it seems, can hear an echo of the song. And the wiser you are, the more likely you are to be able to see the, the connective threads here that, that indicate the, the path that the future will hold. Remember back at the Council of Elrond, when Elrond says to Frodo, when Frodo volunteers to undertake this incredibly dangerous mission, uh, Elrond says, if I have understood aright all that I have heard, and as I said at the time, he doesn't seem to just be talking about the council. He seems to be suggesting that there is something else that he can hear that gives him some kind of mildly prophetic ability. And that, I think, is connected to Aragorn's prophetic ability, too. That Elrond of Elven descent and Aragorn of, you know, Numenorean descent, effectively, of the Dúnedain, have similar abilities here. They are the great and the good, and they are, crucially, the wise, too. And we will see Gandalf, too, kind of display a similar kind of prophetic ability. But it's never certain, it's never sure, and he always, always questions it. So that's our introduction here. A farewell to Gandalf. And as I said, we're going to bracket tonight's reading really rather beautifully with, uh, with farewells. We'll see how we feel about the second one when we get to it. From here, though, we push onward to the Mirror Mirror. To the east, the outflung arm of the mountains marched to a sudden end, and far lands could be described beyond them wide and vague. 
To the south, the misty mountains receded endlessly as far as sight could reach. Less than a mile away and a little below them, for they still stood high up on the west side of the dale, there lay a mere. It was long and oval, shaped like a giant spearhead thrust deep into the northern glen, but its southern end was beyond the shadows under the sunlit sky. Yet its waters were dark, a deep blue like clear evening sky seen from a lamp-lit room. Its face was still and unruffled. About it lay a smooth sward, shelving down on all sides to its bare, unbroken rim. "'There lies the Mirrmir, deep Keledzaram,' said Gimli sadly. "'I remember that he said, "'May you have joy of the sight, but we cannot linger there. "'Now long shall I journey ere I have joy again. "'It is I that must hasten away, and he that must remain.'" Here Gimli remembers the... Uh, the words of uh, the words of Gandalf back in Moria, um, and here we see the mirror mirror, which we've already had discussed. Okay, we already had Gimli's song where he was talking about the mirror mirror. He, we know already that this is where Durin had his vision of the seven stars above his head, the crown of Durin that indicated that this, the Dale of of Azanulbazar, was the place to create his home, was the place to begin to carve out his great dwarven kingdom, which he did. That's how we arrived at Khazadum in the first place. So we are already kind of primed to anticipate the Miramir, but look at this description. It feels inhuman. It feels supernatural. And the Miramir is certainly, when we talk about supernatural geography i suppose supernatural elements of the na- of the natural world in the frame of tolkien we oftentimes talk about the old forest and we oftentimes talk about the fangorn forest which we'll get to in just a few chapters time but we hardly ever remember to talk about the miramir but this lake is clearly supernatural in the sense that it is greater than natural in the sense that it is above and more than natural um here, yes, exactly, exactly. Yeah, we're commenting on this in the YouTube chat. You're absolutely right. And Jenna says, God, Gimli, he's so great. Also, like, the relationship that was established even in such a short time between he and Gandalf is so well done. It absolutely is. I love that relationship. And that line, now long shall I journey and I have joy again. It is, that, it is I that must hasten away and he that must remain. How difficult for Gimli, too, to have passed through the ruins of the dwarven colony here in Moria, to have seen what happened to his people, and to have left behind the man who perhaps best understood the story of his people. It's a challenging time for Gimli, but we're going to see Gimli arc right out of this, too. It's going to take some time, but he really will, and and his journey through the, uh, through the rest of the book is one of my absolute favorites. Um, so this is a curious natural feature. Less than a mile away and a little below them, for they still stood high up on the west side of the dale, there lay a mere. A mere is just a mountain lake, basically. It is a lake that exists above sea level. It's kind of suspended in the natural geography itself. It was long and oval, shaped like a great spearhead thrust deep into the northern glen, but its southern end was, be- was beyond the shadows under the sunlit sky. Yet its waters were dark, a deep blue like clear evening sky seen from a lamp-lit room. Its face was still and ruffled abundantly a smooth sword shelving down on all sides to its bare unbroken rim and look at the way that we're kind of communicating the sense of in which the mirror mirror is mirror like and mirrors are going to be particularly important as we move into the next chapter too so it's long and oval a great spearhead thrust deep into the northern glen its waters are dark its face still and unruffled a smooth sword shelving down on all sides to its bare unbroken rim you can see why 
why this is a magical place. You can see, or, or I guess not why this is a magical place, but you can see that this is a magical place. It's really breathtaking, and it gets all the more breathtaking as we move in toward it. The company now went down. The, excuse me. The company now went down the road from the gates. It was rough and broken, fading to a winding track between heather and wind that thrust amid the cracking stones. But still, it could be seen that once, long ago, a great paved way had wound upwards from the lowlands to the dwarf kingdom. In places, there were ruined works of stone beside the path, and mounds of green topped with slender birches or fir trees sighing in the wind. An eastward band led them hard by the sword of Miramir, and there, not far from the roadside, stood a single column broken at the top. "'At his Durin stone!' cried dimly. "'I cannot pass without turning aside for a moment to look at the wonder of the dale!' "'Be swift, then,' said Aragorn, looking back toward the gates. "'The sun sinks early. The orcs will not maybe come out until after dusk, but we must be far away before nightfall. The moon is almost spent, and it will be dark tonight.' "'Come with me, Frodo!' cried the dwarf, springing from the road. "'I would not have you go without seeing Kelad Zaram!' He ran down the long green slope. Frodo followed slowly, drawn by the still blue water in spite of hurt and weariness. Sam came up behind. Beside the standing stone, Gimli halted and looked up. It was cracked and weather-worn, and the faint runes upon its side could not be read. This, this pillar marks the spot where Durin first looked in the Middermere, said the dwarf. Let us look ourselves once, ere we go. They stooped over the dark water. At first they could see nothing. Then slowly they saw the forms of the encircling mountains mirrored in a profound blue, and the peaks were like plumes of white flame above them. Beyond there was a space of sky. There, like jewels sunk in the deep, shone glinting stars. The sunlight was in the sky above. Of their own stooping forms, no shadow could be seen. "'O oh, Khaled Zaram, fair and wonderful,' said Gimli. "'There lies the crown of Durin till he wakes. "'Farewell.' He bowed and turned away and hastened back up the greensward to the road again. "'What did you see?' said Pippin to Sam. But Sam was too deep in thought to answer. First off, then, a little bit of geography. We are following a paved road here from uh, the gates of Moria all the way down to Lothlorien, effectively. And it's presented here as a... uh, We can look at this... um, But still it could be seen that once long ago a great paved way had wound upwards from the lowlands to the Dwarf Kingdom. That is to say that a great paved way had extended from Lothlorien to the gates of, uh, of Khazadum. And that doesn't actually seem to be true at all. Because the paved part of the road and the kind of uh, the dwarven architecture that accompanies the path of the road, these stone columns long since broken off, the road is paved at Moria and becomes less paved as we move into the lowlands, as we descend through the uh, the Dale of Azanobazar here. And that suggests that the road was not paved by elves, which makes a lot of sense because it seems unlikely that elves would pave roads. Rather, the road was paved by the dwarves and was extending downward toward Lothlorien, rather than this being just a sign of uh, a certain interconnectivity between the two kingdoms. And we must remember, too, that, that Moria occupies a strategically critical position. There are no direct passes across the Misty Mountains in this part of the world. You have to go north to the Redhorn Pass, to the Carathras Pass, before you can cross the Misty mountains. But on the eastern side of Moria, we have Lothlorien, which has been an elven kingdom for as long as there has been an elven kingdom, right? And on the western side of the Misty Mountains, again, right next to Moria, we have Holland. Remember how we talked about uh, the the elves who lived there and how they, they have long since departed and only the stones remember their presence. 
So we have two elven kingdoms separated by the Misty Mountains with the convenient transport here of Khazadum, of Moria. We can just pass through the Dwarven Kingdom, and it seems very likely that that is the case. There was a firm friendship, as we saw, between the elves and dwarves. But the dwarves were not an incidental part of this partnership. It seems as though they were reaching out to the elves as, as much as the elves were reaching out to the dwarves. Um, yes, as Nikki says, wouldn't an elf road be more natural? Paved roads fit in more with the dwarves. Absolutely, I think that's completely true. Oh, and Heroes and Bards has a really interesting uh, has a really interesting observation here. Moria is kind of like the Silk Road. It kind of is. Yeah, I like that a lot. That's that's a very good uh, that's a very good call there. Um, <laughs> Merging Puppy says, okay, I'm super distracted by the LOTR project now, so thanks for that. Not the first time that I've mentioned it, so uh, I, I can only apologize so much for sending you off down that particular rabbit hole. It's pretty great. Um, Alan asks, is Durin's crown literally somewhere in the mirror mirror, like his actual crown, or is that symbolic somehow? It is absolutely symbolic. When Durin first looked in mirror mirror, he had an experience very much like this one. Well, kind of like this one. There is a difference here. They stooped over the dark water. At first they could see nothing. Then slowly they saw the forms of the encircling mountains mirrored in a profound blue, and the peaks were like plumes of white flame above them. Beyond there was a space of sky. There, like jewels sunk in the deep, shone glinting stars. The sunlight was in the sky above. Of their own stooping forms, no shadow could be seen. Okay, so two weird things about Miramir. First, it reflects starlight, even in the middle of the afternoon. Second, you cannot see yourself in Miramir. Neither Frodo, nor Sam, nor uh, Gimli can see their own reflections. They can't see their own shadows cast in the water. But Durin apparently could. Because when Durin looked in the mirror mirror, as we saw back in Gimli's song about it, he saw reflected above his head the seven stars that formed his theoretical, metaphorical, symbolic crown. But in order to see those stars suspended above his head, he would have to see himself in the water too. So that seems to be the most important distinction. It seems likely that anyone can see the reflection of Durin's stars in the mirror mirror, but only Durin could see himself. That may be the little twist here of the magic. As Gildar's Winter says, oh God, now the hobbits are vampires. Call Buffy. Merging Puppy 2 anticipating that. Maybe they're all vampires. Could be, As a, again, we're going to talk about mirrors next chapter. So uh, yeah, we'll get to that. Um, Speaking of Durin, says Austin in Adventureland, uh, you would think the next Durin would have the biggest weight on his shoulders. Uh, he is going to, as I discussed a little bit uh, when we were talking about the Lion of Durin. There will be another Durin. He's coming in the very near future. Dude, you know, no spoilers, but he's he's on his way. Durin the Seventh will rise again. Yeah. <laughs> Jenna Cat says, I also love how Gimli is like, Frodo, come along. And Frodo does, and Sam just tags along because, duh, stuck like Velcro. Yeah. It's pretty great. It's pretty great. Uh, Lady Sorka says, It's also possible that Gimli feels like he knows Frodo much better since Bilbo did travel back to Erebor before settling in Rivendell. Maybe he liked to tell stories. Certainly, I think that Frodo has earned a earned a kind of uh, respect by proxy here because he is related to the great Bilbo because Bilbo's position... Um, among the dwarves of Erebor in particular, in particular is, is very strong. Yeah. Good. That and Gimli, as Heroes and Bard says, that and Gimli may have thought Frodo has inherited Bilbo's fondness for story and poetry. Very good. Yeah, I like that a lot too, as an explanation. Okay. And Jackie makes the, oh, this is a much more tragic observation here. It's almost like Frodo's just too worn down to even resist going along. Oh, 
That's a little grim. Poor Frodo. But he's, you know, been through it. And it's interesting that we don't get a lot of Frodo's, uh, Frodo's characterization, direct Frodo's account here as we move forward. So we take this time away to look at the mirror mirror. We get something that is explicitly magical here. And I, I do urge you all to bear the mirror mirror in mind when you're thinking about Tolkien's perspective on the natural world, because it isn't just the old forest. It isn't just even Mirkwood and Dol Guldur. It isn't just Old Man Willow. And it isn't just Treebeard. You know, it isn't just forests. There is other magic in this world, and the Miramir certainly, I mean explicitly, is magical. Um, from there, we take a brief rest. We push on. The party actually pushes on. Aragorn and Boromir taking the lead, of course, marching uh, resolutely to get away from the gate, and the hobbits, exhausted, start to lag behind, which certainly gives some credence to uh, to Jackie's theory there about Frodo. Um, and this is the next beat that we get. Um Nope, that's not the next beat that we get. In fact, this is the next beat that we get. <laughs> Here it is. While Gimli and the two younger hobbits kindled a, brush, uh, kindled a fire of brush and firwood and drew water, Aragorn tended Sam and Frodo. Sam's wound was not deep, but it looked ugly, and Aragorn's face was grave as he examined it. After a moment, he looked up in relief. Good luck, Sam, he said. Many have received worse than this in payment for the slaying of their first orc. The cut is not poisoned, as the wounds of orc blades too often are. It should heal well when I have tended it. Bathe it when Gimli has heated water. He opened his pouch and drew out some withered leaves. They are dry, and some of their virtue is gone, he said. But here I still have some of the leaves of Athelos that I gathered near Weathertop. Crush one in the water and wash the wound clean, and I will bind it. Now it is your turn, Frodo. I am all right, said Frodo, reluctant to have his garments touched. All I needed was some food and a little rest. No, said Aragorn. We must have a look and see what the hammer and the anvil have done to you. I still marvel that you are alive at all. Gently, he stripped off Frodo's old jacket and worn tunic and gave a gasp of wonder. Then he laughed. The silver corslet shimmered before his eyes like the light upon a rippling sea. Carefully, he took it off and held it up, and the gems on it glittered like stars, and the sound of the shaken rings was like the tinkle of rain in a pool. Look, my friends, he called. Here's a pretty hobbit skin to wrap an elven princeling in. If it were known that all hobbits had such hides, all the hunters of Middle-earth would be riding to the Shire. And all the arrows of all the hunters in the world would be in vain, said Gimli, gazing at the male in wonder. It is a mithril coat. Mithril, I have never seen or heard tell of one so fair. Is this the coat that Gandalf spoke of? Then he undervalued it, but it was well given. The reveal here of Frodo's mithril coat that he has worn... Um, that he has worn now so long on the journey and it protected him so well in the mines of Moria. This is an interesting beat to me. Frodo's reluctance. I am all right, said Frodo, reluctant to have his garments touched. All I needed was some food and a little rest. Why is it that Frodo is reluctant? As Emerging Puppy asks here, why did Frodo keep this secret? And I kind of understand why he kept it secret to this point. He hasn't known these people very long. He is closest now out of the company, besides the hobbits, of course. He is closest with Aragorn. But there are three people in this company that he doesn't know at all well. And though Gimli is making overtures of friendship, Boromir and Legolas much less so. So he may not want to reveal, particularly now that he knows that this, this little uh, mithril corslet could have bought the entire Shire, he may not want to reveal that he's wearing it, actually. He may be a little embarrassed about wearing this dwarven thing. You remember that Bilbo himself was kind of uh, a little embarrassed about how he looked wearing the mithril coat. So that is possible. But of course, every time we see Frodo's motivation become a little clouded, we have to ask a couple of things. First of all, we have to ask, well, is this the ring? And now, sadly, 
we have to ask another question. Is this the consequence of the wound inflicted by the Morgul blade? Is this a consequence of the wound that Frodo took at Weathertop? And how interesting here in this specific passage that we reference the Athalas, that we reference Weathertop specifically. Well, I'm just not sure. I mean, we must remember that these people are, though they are very familiar to us, and we expect our our D&D adventuring party to get along very well indeed, they are pretty much strangers, and Frodo may be embarrassed, as I said, about the uh, about the Mithril Code, either embarrassed that he looks faintly ridiculous in it, or perhaps embarrassed that he um, that he is uh, kind of wearing this this thing of enormous wealth and enormous value that protects him in a way that no one else in the party is protected. It may be a kind of shame that is driving Frodo to to keep this secret. No, 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 I don't I don't want you to know that I've got this basically you know magical armor that's going to save my ass when you guys all get killed by orcs. That's an arguable interpretation. It may again also be the ring. It may again also be the influence of the Morgul blade. It is possible that Frodo is keeping the secret because something is urging him to be distrustful of his fellowship. Something is urging him to separate already from the rest of the fellowship. And we'll pay attention to that as we move forward. As Glorfinn David says very astutely in the YouTube chat, or afraid that someone will take it from him. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Good. Okay. Let's, uh, yeah, uh, Glorfinn David says, we could also ask why the company is taking such an interest in disrobing Frodo. Well, Aragorn is taking an interest in disrobing Frodo after, I mean, we must remember, everyone thought from the injury that he took or from the injury that he would have taken if not wearing the, the mithril corselet, everyone thought that Frodo was dead. Gandalf assumed that Aragorn was carrying the body of a dead hobbit for a second and then realized that Frodo wasn't just alive but was actually fine. And now we're revealing the, the truth of the matter here. Aragorn wants to check Frodo out, wants to care for him. That's part of his job, both as a member of the Fellowship and, of course, as a king. We must remember this is why Aragorn is... Well, okay, let's not say this is why Aragorn is a skilled healer, but part of the efficacy of Aragorn's healing is that he is a king, is that he is special. He is, you know, anointed. He is of great blood. And that allows him to perform acts of healing, to tap into the power within the Athalas and so on and so forth. Of course, he spent a lot of time with Elrond too in Rivendell. Elrond, probably the world's greatest healer, certainly the world's greatest lore keeper. So he's very skilled here. Yeah. Okay. Let's, um, <laughs> Kendra says, yes, who wants to, who wants everyone to know you're wearing undergarments worth more than the whole party, worth more than the whole party, worth more than Elrond's entire house, in fact. He could just go back and buy Rivendell with this mithril corslet, and that would be a little tough. <laughs> Gildarts Winter says, why are you taking my clothes off, Aragorn? Should we not have a few meals first? Just relax, Frodo. It's fine. It's all just fine. Okay. Yes, Kingsfall, remember the prophecy about Athelus? Yes, absolutely right. Good. We'll come back to Athelus again. We're, we're not done with Athelus yet in this story. Okay. Gosh, we must pick up the pace a little bit. We've got to get to the good stuff. Okay. Let's keep moving onward. It was dark. Deep night had fallen. There were many clear stars, but the fast-waning moon would not be seen till late. Gimli and Frodo were at the rear, walking softly and not speaking, listening for any sound upon the road behind. At length, Gimli broke the silence. Not a sound but the wind, he said. There are no goblins near, or my ears are made of wood. It is to be hoped that the orcs will be content with driving us from Moria, and maybe that was all their purpose, and they had nothing else to do with us, with the ring. Though orcs will often pursue foes for many leagues into the plain if they have a fallen captain to avenge. Frodo did not answer. He looked at Sting, and the blade was dull. 
yet he had heard something, or thought he had. As soon as the shadows had fallen about them and the road behind was dim, he had heard again the quick patter of feet. Even now he heard it. He turned swiftly. There were two tiny gleams of light behind, and for a moment he thought he saw them, but at once they slipped aside and vanished. "'What is it?' said the dwarf. "'I don't know,' answered Frodo. "'I thought I heard feet, and uh, I thought I saw a light, like eyes. I have thought so often since we first entered Moria.'" More on this plot thread in the chapters to come. Um, this is one of the reasons that this chapter, Lothlorien, is so interesting, because we really are at a turning point in the narrative. We're expanding on existing plot threads. We're opening up, oh, <clears throat> excuse me, opening up new dynamics in the Fellowship. We're going to get some great Boromir and Aragorn conversations in the very near future. And we are uh, advancing into the next phase of the story. We're rapidly approaching the end of the two towers. Uh, the end of the two towers. I'm anticipating our movement quite a lot. We're rapidly approaching the end of the Fellowship of the Ring and the beginning of the two towers. And we are, are really framing the next act of the story, the next part of the story. This is very ominous. And this is one of these beats where we get uh, heavy foreshadowing. Jackie says Frodo's senses seems to have heightened since Weathertop. He does seem to be more astute and acute, doesn't he? And it's difficult to tell how much that is simply hobbitishness. We know that hobbits are very skilled at, at perceiving their surroundings. We know that they have excellently acute senses. And we know that dwarves... Uh, that is less true of dwarves, but it does seem unlikely that Gimli can be so sure here. There are no goblins near, or my ears are made of wood. And yet, even as he's saying that, Frodo can hear the pit-pat, pit-pat of bare feet on stone behind them. That does seem odd, and it may well be the case that Frodo's senses are now more acute than they are. Yes, wraithness, as, as, uh, as Jackie observes here. Yes, good, good. Uh, Mitch says, do you think Tolkien went, oh no, we lost the foundation of the fellowship. Maybe I should make these people connect some more. Um, let me see here. Um, I don't think that this is a kind of reactive response to the loss of Gandalf. I don't think that he is tightening the fellowship in because Gandalf died, because Gandalf dying was somehow unexpected. And then he thought, well, damn, now I don't have the glue that's holding the party together. Maybe I should, you know, have actual communication lines open up between these characters. But I do think that that is one of the reasons why Gandalf disappears from the story at this point. Remember, he pulled exactly the same trick back in The Hobbit. Gandalf disappears from the narrative for much less well-justified reasons, at least within the pages of The Hobbit itself. And that forces Bilbo and the dwarves to kind of to, to go on by themselves. It forces Bilbo to take more of a leadership role, and it tightens the bonds between the group. Gandalf is a paternal figure. He's everyone's favorite wizard dad. And while he's there, he is the default authority. He's the one who, who you know, enforces the rules. He's the one who, who squashes any quabbles and any, any disagreements that are occurring within the fellowship. If Boromir had dared kind of suggest that he didn't want to go to Lothlorien, as he will in a few pages' time, if Boromir had dared to suggest that he didn't want to go to Lothlorien while Gandalf was with the group, Aragorn wouldn't have said a thing. Because Gandalf would have slapped Boromir on the back of the head and said, shut up, you're coming. If you don't behave yourself, I'm going to turn this entire fellowship around. And everyone would have said, thanks, wizard dad, and they would have gone on about their business. The removal of Gandalf from the narrative is absolutely necessary in order to give the other characters space to develop. This is true in The Hobbit. It is true here in The Lord of the Rings, too. 
when Gandalf returns, and I know that's a minor spoiler, but hey, you guys, Gandalf isn't completely dead. Uh, when Gandalf returns in The Lord of the Rings, he's going to return in a very different way to a very different set of circumstances. I won't anticipate that too much, but yeah. Yeah, good. Uh, as old Toby says, not sure Frodo would have left the Fellowship if Gandalf was around. Well, we're, yeah, we're anticipating the, uh, the next move there. Yes. Um, good. Good. Okay. Let's... Uh, <laughs> Thanks, Wizard Dad, and you there and back again t-shirt, says Jenna Katz. That's a pretty good one, actually. Yeah, I'm pretty fond of that. I do still want to pull together the uh, Took's Gonna Took uh, t-shirt, too. I guess just there and back again t-shirts is going to be my primary business now. Heroes and Bard says, I'm not tempted to never refer to Gandalf as anything other than Wizard Dad. <laughs> I'm pretty happy with this. I'm pretty happy with this. Uh, Angela says, Gandalf, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Is it much further? Can I have chocolate milk and some fruit snacks? Okay. So all we need to know right now is that Frodo is being followed. We saw this beat back in Moria. We're going to see it again before the end of the chapter. But something, something, which we definitely couldn't predict, I'm sure, is following Frodo at this point. This, though, is our kind of turning point in the uh, in the chapter, because at this point, we really start looking forward to Lothlorien. And we're going to begin this next slide with Aragorn saying exactly that. Lothlorien, said Aragorn. Glad I am to hear again the wind in the trees. We are still a little more than five leagues from the gates, but we can go no further. Here, let us hope that the virtue of the elves will keep us tonight from the peril that comes behind. If elves indeed still dwell here in the darkening world, said Gimli. It is long since any of my folk journeyed hither back to the land whence we wandered in ages long ago, said Legolas. But we hear that Lorien is not yet deserted, for there is a secret power here that holds evil from the land. Nevertheless, its folk are seldom seen, and maybe they dwell now deep in the woods and far from the northern border. Indeed, deep in the woods they dwell, said Aragorn, and sighed as if some memory stirred in him. We must fend for ourselves tonight. We will go forward a short way until the trees are all about us, then we will turn aside from the path and seek a place to rest in. He stepped forward, but Boromir stood irresolute and did not follow. Is there no other way? he said. What other fairer way would you desire? said Aragorn. A plain road, though it led us through a hedge of swords, said Boromir. By strange paths has this company been led, and so far to evil fortune. Against my will we passed under the shades of Moria, to our loss. And now we must enter the Golden Wood, you say? But of that perilous land we have heard in Gondor, and it is said that few come out who once go in. And of that few, none have escaped unscathed. Say not unscathed. But if you say unchanged, then maybe you will speak the truth, said Aragorn. But lore wanes in Gondor or Boromir, if in the city of those who, were, who once were wise they now speak evil of Lothlorien. Believe what you will, there is no other way for us unless you, go, unless you would go back to Moria Gate or scale the pathless mountains or swim the great river all alone. Then lead on, said Boromir. But it is perilous. Perilous indeed, said Aragorn. Fair and perilous. But only evil need fear it, or those who bring some evil with them. Follow me. Jackie's saying here, everyone's rolling their eyes at Boromir here, and I'm kind of inclined to agree. Certainly, uh, I felt that way, I don't know, the first 15 times that I read The Lord of the Rings, but now I'm looking at it with fresh eyes, and I want to pay particular attention to what Aragorn says in the last line on this slide. Perilous indeed, says Aragorn, fair and perilous, but only evil need fear it, or those who bring some evil with them, follow me. Those who bring some evil with them, Aragorn, remind me uh, of your quest. Remind me why it is that this fellowship has gathered around this hobbit who carries the world's most evil magical artifact. I mean, I get evil intent 
perhaps, but you are literally, literally carrying evil with you, the greatest evil that you could carry with you. Boromir doesn't seem to be putting that together either and doesn't have that witty rejoinder, though I like to imagine that that night as they're sleeping, you know, 4 a.m., 4.30, you know, Boromir just wakes in the middle of the night and says, we are carrying evil with us. You know, he has that little uh, l'esprit de l'escalier. He has that moment of, wait, no, you're stupid, is what he should have said, but he didn't. Lothlorien, though, I love the way that we're already foreshadowing Lothlorien, the way that we're already evoking the sense and the spirit of this place, and we're getting all of these different perspectives. It's five leagues from here. It is 15 miles from here, but we can go no further. Here, let us hope that the virtue of the elves will keep us tonight from the peril that comes behind. The virtue of the elves, just the goodness of elves, not a specific virtue, not the protection of the elves, not the barricades and fortifications of the elves, just the fact that elves are elves. I hope that will keep us safe from the actual literal orcs that are pursuing us down this road. If, says Gimli, elves indeed still dwell here in the darkening world. And then we get Legolas putting in. It is long since any of my own folk journeyed hither back to the land whence we wandered in ages long ago, said Legolas. But we hear that Lorien is not yet deserted, for there is a secret power here that holds evil from the land. Nevertheless, its folk are seldom seen, and maybe they dwell now deep in the woods and far from the northern border. And then Aragorn immediately tips his hand. Oh yeah, no, I know where they are. Indeed, deep in the wood they dwell. And then we're going to take a break. And Boromir voices his concern, says, By strange paths has this company been led, and so far to evil fortune. Against my will, we passed under the shades of Moria. Hey, you know what, Boromir? One to you. Five points for, you know, Slytherin. Probably, right? Probably Slytherin. Five points for Slytherin. Boromir, good job. And now we must enter the Golden Wood, you say? But of that perilous land we have heard in Gondor, and it is said that few come out who once go in, and of that few, none have escaped unscathed. We're dealing with fairy. We're always, of course, dealing with fairy. We're always dealing with, uh, with, um, with this tension between the natural world and the supernatural world, with capital F fairy, with the transitions into and out of fairy. We've discussed this twice in the course of this book already, in, in, twice in specific terms, when Frodo meets with Gildor all the way back in the Shire and is taken into the, the elven feast there, where they rest and recuperate and are protected from the Black Riders. And then when we get to Rivendell, that too is an entrance into fairy. But these are civil kinds of fairy. These are familiar kinds of fairy, because for all that Gildor is an elf, and for all that Elrond is an elf, they are west of the mountains elves. They are kind of Shire-compatible elves. They know about hobbits, if nothing else. They've proven themselves previously to be friendly to hobbits, so Frodo isn't immediately worried. But even Legolas, whose people used to live in Lothlorien before they deserted and fled northeast into the Mirkwood and, and found, you know, Thranduil's kingdom, even Legolas's people don't know if there are still elves here. Well, we've heard tell that it isn't deserted yet. And that, of course, brings us to perhaps the greatest tragedy of Lothlorien, the greatest tragedy of Middle-earth, the tragedy of all the elves. The elves are leaving. They are sailing, 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 as Sam chanted all the way back at the beginning of the book. They are departing from Middle-earth into the West, and they are taking, in great measure, the magic with them. Now, we know that the land will remember. We know that anyway from various hints through The Hobbit and now The Lord of the Rings too. But we know that, as in Holland, for example, even when the elves are gone, their presence will linger. The stones will remember them. And it will be some time before darkness can encroach upon spaces that were once inhabited by elves. But they are going. Legolas doesn't know if Lothlorien is deserted 
yet. But it will be. Because that is the, the arc of elven life in Middle-earth here. They're going to depart. And I had an interesting question this week addressing exactly this topic. Why is it that elves depart? Why is it, you know, why are elves leaving Middle-earth is basically the question. And the answer is actually surprisingly complicated. Um, there isn't really a... We will get one factual explanation, one, one kind of plot-relevant explanation for why the elves are departing Middle-earth, but we're not going to get that until the end of the book. We're going to see, as a consequence of the events of The Lord of the Rings, why the elves kind of, why their power is waning and why they are departing. To really understand why the elves are leaving and thus to have a perspective on the beauty and the tragedy of Lothlorien specifically we have to kind of dig back into Tolkien's Legendarium and his original conceit for these stories. And really, there are two approaches that we must be mindful of here, or two kind of contributing factors which we must consider here. The first is that Tolkien was a medievalist. And in the medieval worldview, particularly the medieval Christian worldview, the world was fallen. The greatest days were behind us. Paradise was literally behind us. It was literally in the past. And hey, not that long ago either, a hundred generations back to the actual literal Garden of Eden. But now we're in a fallen world. And the world is only going to continue to get darker and darker and darker until the day of judgment when all, I was going to say when all hell is going to break loose, you know, that's thematically and kind of uh, theologically inappropriate, but you get my point, uh, until we get to the day of judgment and then, you know, restoration will come about. And it's not going to be a kind of restoration that we can really enjoy. The world is broken. That was the medievalist perspective and Tolkien kind of picked that up and carried it along too. At the same time, that, by the way, speaks to things like the diminution of the Numenorians and, and the idea that the world now is not what it was. And this idea goes back all the way to the pages of The Hobbit. You'll remember in The Hobbit, we, we don't really talk about the tragedy of the elves in The Hobbit, even in the second edition of The Hobbit, even in the third edition of The Hobbit. We don't really talk about the, the, the diminution of the elves and how they are less now than once they were. But we do talk about the fall of Gondolin. We do talk about the fact that once there was a great elven civilization, uh, a peerless elven, elven civilization, and that was shattered, and that fell, and now we live in the ruin, now we live in the wreckage. And of course, the other ideas of a fallen world, of a world that is sliding toward the abyss, that will never again achieve the greatness of the years of yore, that's encoded in The Hobbit all the way through, you know, when we're talking about Dale, when we're talking about Erebor, the great times are behind us. And we can try and rise again, but it's never going to be the way that it was. From there, we move into the Lord of the Rings. And of course, as I said, we introduce this notion that the elves are leaving, that they're leaving us, as Sam says, with kind of a heartbreaking vulnerability and sailing, sailing, sailing. The elves are departing from Middle-earth in part because Tolkien wanted to explain elves. Elves are fairies, as I've said many times before. They are one and the same. And Tolkien wanted to kind of account here in the distant prehistory of our world. Remember, that was the original concept for his entire legendarium, was that it would be the, the kind of myths of antiquity of Northwestern Europe, brackets, but really just England, close brackets. Um, he wanted to create a kind of aggregate mythology for England. He wanted to explain where England came from in a mythic sense. And so many other countries have these, these mythic origins. You know, the Norse had them and the Greeks had them and the Romans had them. And even, you know, the, the Celts and the Picts had them. So many cultures have these. And the English, being the kind of bastard mongrel nation that they were, even in Tolkien's time, even in Tolkien's time, when I'm talking about Tolkien's time, I'm talking about, you know, the post-medieval period. I'm talking about 
about the area of Tolkien's interest, not the area of uh, the duration of Tolkien's life here. Um, Given that they were this kind of mongrel, you know, accumulation of people who drew influences from all over Europe but had no defining core identity, they lacked that aggregate mythology. They lacked that foundation, and Tolkien wanted to create that. And a part of creating that aggregate mythology was to explain elves. Elves once existed. Now, they don't, question mark. They have literally been diminished. They have shrunk in size. They have shrunk in power. This is how we go from, let's say, um, let's say, you know, the Green Knight, Gawain and the Green Knight, okay? Like, like a powerful, classic kind of elven archetype fairy story, the Green Knight, all the way through, you know, Puck and Oberon and Titania through to Tinkerbell. What you're seeing there is a physical and a, a kind of uh, a diminution of, of power and authority, a, a diminution of magic, a diminution of belief even. And Tolkien wanted to explain how that happened. So the diminution of the elves, the, the leaving of the elves, the trace memory of the elves was one of the foundation stones in his entire legendarium. That was kind of one of the core concepts that he brought in. But it's unusual because within the frame itself, it isn't really explained. It isn't really clear why it is that elves diminish over time, except that they do, except that that is their tragedy. And, and that tragedy is, of course, where their beauty chiefly comes. You know, that, that is why the elves are so beautiful is because they are temporary within the frame of Middle-earth. And that's enormously powerful. Um, let me see here as I'm catching up with the conversation. Uh, <laughs> uh, not all elves, says old Toby. Seems like the Sylvan elves are pretty happy stay, uh, staying in Middle-earth. Yeah, well, they don't have plans to leave, but all elves are tarrying in Middle-earth. You know, that's, uh, as Gildor said, you know, we're, we're tarrying here. Um, let me see here. Gosh, there are so many questions that we can delve into. Yeah, yeah. The difficulty with immortality. Yeah, Jackie's calling this out. Tolkien explains the difficulty of immortality so beautifully. The immortality and the burden of belonging here. The tragedy of elves, in a kind of uh, theological sense, is that they belong here, is that they are of the world. And this is one of the really interesting inversions that Tolkien's, uh, Tolkien's profound kind of theological insight uh, allowed him to bring into his fictional frame here, right? We think of man as being mundane. Man are natural and elves are supernatural, and that is not true in the frame of the Lord of the Rings, at least not spiritually speaking, at least not, you know, in terms of our religious faith or in terms of the nature of the soul. Elves are completely natural. Their souls are of Arda. They are going to stay here. They are immortal, effectively, and when they die, they go to the halls and they, they will wait there, but occasionally be reborn even. They'll come back into the world because they are of the world, and that is their tragedy. The souls of men are not of the world. The souls of men are divine, in a sense. They are destined for something else, destined for something greater. They are here for a while, but when they die, they depart from Arda and go to heaven. That is the great virtue of mankind. So immortality here isn't just a flat kind of burden. It isn't just a flat kind of curse. It isn't, oh, woe is me, for I have lived for 10,000 years and seen everyone I love die around me. And, you know, the kind of usual tragedies associated with immortality. Here, there was something far worse, which is, well, I've lived for 10,000 years and I might live for 10,000 more, or I might not. And it doesn't matter because I'm just stuck here. 
This is my lot. This is my life. There will never be anything greater. There will never be anything other. Man lived for 90 years, 150 years, 250 years. You know, we can track back all the way to the ancient Numenoreans who lived for 400, 500 years. But when they die, in a flicker of an eye to an elf, when they die, they leave. They go somewhere greater. That's the great, the great virtue, the great blessing of man. And that, of course, opens up the irony, the core irony at the heart of the Numenorean story, where the Numenoreans are so desperate for, for immortality that they are tricked into assaulting Valinor itself, forcing Iluvatar to reach down and crack the world, sinking Numenor beneath the waves and turning what was a flat plain into a sphere so that none now can reach the Undying Lands. None now can reach Valinor just by sailing west. You need to take the special road, the special route, the straight path, as it were. Okay. I just talked for a long time and there are now a thousand questions here in the YouTube chat. If you have questions about this, probably the best thing to do is to email me those questions. I'm going to talk a little about elves uh, as we start next week's session when we're actually talking about Gladriel and talking about Lothlorien itself. So if you have questions about elves or thoughts about elves, do get in touch. Email me pointnorthmedia at gmail.com. Good. Okay. <laughs> Lots of very deep cut questions here. Okay. I'm going to ignore all of these. Um, Galadriel, okay, okay, I'll, I'll acknowledge this just quickly. Galadriel asks, but didn't Tolkien hint somewhere that after the end of time, the elves and dwarves even would, would either go to heaven or be part of a renewed creation? The elves possibly would be part of a renewed creation. The dwarves specifically would be, or at least the dwarves would be in dwarven myth and dwarven lore. The dwarves, they are told, when they die, are sent to the halls to wait, and they will be summoned again by Aule after the end of the world so that they can rebuild a new creation. But obviously we don't know if that's true. And we must remember that the Silmarillion is told from an elven perspective. So we don't know even how much of that is like objectively true. These are the myths of the elves. So we're not, uh, you know, completely sure of that. Yes. Uh, Chesley kind of encapsulates everything that I've just discussed for the last five minutes by saying the broad story of Middle Earth seems like a general decline, which takes us back to that idea of, of, you know, a kind of somewhat fatalistic medievalist outlook. You know, the idea that the greatest days, the golden age is always behind us and we now live in a fallen world. This is going to be, um, specifically interesting as we move into, uh, Lothlorien. But first, before we get to a discussion of Lothlorien, we have a song. This is our intro to the song. Here is Nimrodal, said Legolas. Of this stream the Sylvan Elves made many songs long ago, and still we sing them in the north, remembering the rainbow on its falls and the golden flowers that floated in its foam. All is dark now, and the bridge of Nimrodal is broken down. I will bathe my feet, for it is said that the water is healing to the weary. He went forward and climbed down the deep cloven bank and stepped into the stream. Follow me, he cried. The water is not deep. Let us wade across. On the furthest bank we can rest, and the sound of the falling water may bring, may bring us sleep and forgetfulness of grief. One by one they climbed down and followed Legolas. For a moment Frodo stood near the brink and let the water flow over his tired feet. It was cold, but its touch was clean, and as he went on, it mounted to his knees. He felt the stain of travel and all weariness was washed from his limbs. When all the company had crossed, they sat and rested and ate a little food, and Legolas told them tales of Lothlorien and th that the elves of Mirkwood still kept in their hearts, of sunlight and starlight upon the meadows by the great river before the world was grey. At length the silence fell and they heard the music of the waterfall running sweetly in the shadows. Almost Frodo fancied he could hear a voice singing, mingled with the sound of the water. Do you hear the voice of Nimrodel? asked Legolas. I will sing you a song of the maiden Nimrodel, who bore the same name as the stream beside which she lived long ago. It is a fair song in our woodland tongue, 
but this is how it runs in the Western speech, as some in Rivendell now sing it. Heroes and bards calling out the power of water in Middle-earth. Yes, the power of water in Middle-earth and the power of this water in particular. We are, of course, in an elven realm. And as we know, elven realms do not forget the passing of elves. And though the the folk of Lothlorien have retreated down to the southern you know, encampments here, this is still their realm. And that may account for, uh, for some of the magic that is held here. Um... Let's take a look first at the song itself, and then we'll parse it a little bit. As Jackie says, this is so sad. I know. Okay, we're going to look at the whole thing here because uh, because it's just so spectacularly good. Um, yes, good. Okay. An elven maid there was of old, a shining star by day. Her mantle white was, helmed with, was hemmed with gold, her shoes of silver gray. A star was bound upon her brows, a light was on her hair, a sun upon the golden boughs, and Lorien the fair. Her hair was long, her limbs were white, and fair she was, and free. And in the wind she went as light as leaf of linden tree. Beside the falls of Nimrodell, by water clear and cool, her voice as falling silver fell into the shining pool, where now she wanders, none can tell, in sunlight or in shade. For lost of yore was Nimrodell, and in the mountain strayed. The elven ship in haven grey beneath the mountain lee awaited her for many a day beside the roaring sea. A wind by night in northern lands arose and loud it cried and drove the ship from elven strands across the streaming tide. When dawn came dim, the land was lost, the mountains sinking grey, beyond the heaving waves that tossed their plumes of, bl of blinding spray. Amroth beheld the fading shore, now low beyond the swell, and cursed the faithless ship that bore him far from Nimrodell. Of old he was an elven king, a lord of tree and glen, when golden were the boughs in spring and fair Lothlorien. From helm to sea they saw him leap as arrow from the string and dive into the water deep as mew upon the wing. The wind was in his flowing hair, the foam about him shone. Afar they saw him strong and fair go riding like a swan. But from the west has come no word, and on the hither shore no tidings elven folk have heard of Amroth evermore. So, Nimrodel and Amroth. Nimrodel is the Lady of the White Grotto. That's the literal uh, translation of her name there. Um, and she is a maid of Lothlorien, an elven maid there was of old, a shining star by day. Her mantle white was hemmed with gold, her shoes of, of silver gray. Here she is. And we're, we're actually comparing her directly. We're, we're connecting her directly with Lorien. Uh, a light was on her hair, a sun upon the golden boughs, and Lorien the fair. So we're connecting her physically to to Lorien. Uh, we're getting some questions here in the YouTube chat. Merging Puppy says, anyone else getting Poe vibes, specifically Annabelle Lee? Um, Edgar Allan Poe, in his brilliant essay, The Philosophy of Composition, argued that the purest and best form of story was a story of grief, a story of lost love, preferably caused by the death of a young beloved woman. That tragedy was the best story. That is the highest form of art to which any artist might aspire. And though we might disagree with Mr. Poe, it does seem as though Poe and Tolkien would have got along famously, doesn't it? Because this story, for those of you who are having some trouble uh, parsing this, so Nimrodel is uh, a maid of Lothlorien, 
After the Balrog is awoken in Khazad-dum, Nimrodel flees from Lothlorien. She flees in fear as the dwarves are pouring out of the, the eastern gate of Moria and down through, through the, the Dimrel Dale, down toward Lothlorien. She flees. And she just, you know, wants to be gone. She wants to be safe. And she tells her lover, Amroth, who in some, and you'll, you'll see this reported on the internet, in some early versions of Tolkien's secondary creation, Amroth was the son of Galadriel and Caliborn. That is not true in the published Lord of the Rings. In the published Lord of the Rings, he is the son of an elf named Amdir and became, after the death of his father at the uh, the Battle of Daggerland, which is the, the last battle of the last alliance where Isildur kills Sauron and takes the ring, after Amdir dies at that battle, Amthor becomes the king of the Galathrim, the king of the elves of Lorien. Uh, um, he is himself Amthor, the king of Lothlorien during the events of the story. Of old, he was an elven king, a lord of tree and glen. Before he departs Lothlorien, he is their king. So Nimrodel flees and says to her lover Amroth, look, and, and there is a whole kind of, um, a whole, well, gosh, we can't get into the different, the different varieties of elves. Perhaps I'll gloss that at the beginning of next week's session because that is spectacularly complicated. But for complicated reasons, it isn't easy for Nimrodel and Amroth to be together, okay? The, the marriage would be difficult. But she says, hey, I will definitely marry you if you can get me somewhere safe. And Amroth says, I can totally do that. We just need to travel south. We need to travel south through Gondor. We need to go, uh, we need to go all the way down to the coast and we can then set sail for Valinor. We can, we can just get out of Dodge. We don't have to deal with this anymore. It's going to be just fine. So he goes there to wait for her, but she never shows up. Beside the falls of Nimrodel, here, the river, beside the falls of Nimrodel, by water clear and cool, her voice as falling silver fell into the shining pool, where now she wanders none can tell, in sunlight or in shade, for lost of yore was Nimrodel, and in the mountains strayed. Nimrodel got lost. And no one knows what happened to her. Though I think in that fourth stanza, we might be able to see a connection between Nimrodel and Amroth. Amroth, as you can tell here right at the end, is going to drown. That is what happens to him after the storm takes the ship away from the shore, okay? He tries to swim back to shore and drowns. But I think that it's possible that Nimrodel drowned too. Possible even that Nimrodel drowned in the waters that would later bear her name and bear her voice. Beside the falls of Nimrodel, by water clear and cool, her voice as falling silver fell into the shining pool. That's three falls or falling or fell in that one stanza. And that is suggestive to me that Nimrodel may have tumbled into the waters that, as I say, bear her names later. So, now she uh, where now she wanders, none can tell, in sunlight or in shade, for lost of yore was Nimrodel, and in the mountain strayed. Then we cut. There was a a hard cinematic cut here. The elven ship in Haven Grey beneath the mountain lee awaited her for many a day beside the roaring sea. A wind by night in northern lands arose and loud it cried and drove the ship from elven strands across the streaming tide. So here we are aboard the ship, this ship that is waiting to deport to Valinor with Amroth here. He is waiting for Nimrodel. He is just waiting for her to show up. Awaited her for many a day beside the roaring sea. Then this storm is summoned from the north. This terrible storm, a wind by night in northern lands, arose and loud it cried, and drove the ship from elven strands across the streaming tide. It drives the ship away from the coast against the will of those on board. 
When dawn came dim, the land was lost, the mountains sinking gray beneath the heaving waves that tossed their plumes of blinding spray. And Roth beheld the fading shore, now low beyond the swell, and cursed the faithless ship that bore him far from Nimrodale. Damn you, ship, for carrying me away from the shore. Damn you for carrying me away from Nimrodale. Of old he was an elven king, a lord of tree and glen, when golden were the boughs in spring and fair Lothlorien. From helm to sea they saw him leap as arrow from the string and dive into the water deep as mew upon the wing. Mew there is a, a gull, a seagull. The wind was in his flowing hair, the foam about him shone. Afar they saw him strong and fair go riding like a swan, but from the west has come no word. And on the hither shore no tidings elven folk have heard of Amroth evermore. So... Nimrodel and Amroth are supposed to meet aboard the ship and travel away together where they will be married. They will escape the tragedies of Middle-earth and they will be united together forever in love as they are. Nimrodel loses her way in the mountains, perhaps tumbles into the water, and Amroth, driven from the shore by the storm after she has failed to show, dives into the water and tries to swim to shore and is himself taken by the waves. It's pretty bad it, it's pretty tragic but there is more to it than this let's uh look at what happens immediately after this so legolas sings this song right i will tell you the song hey it's really great in the tongue of my people but you know in westron as it's so often sung in rivendell am i right it sounds like this so then he sings the song then we get this the voice of legolas faltered and the song ceased i cannot sing anymore he said that is but a part, for I have forgotten much. It is long and sad, and tells how sorrow came upon Lothlorien, Lorien of the Blossom, when the dwarves awakened evil in the mountains. But the dwarves did not make the evil, said Gimli. I said not so, yet evil came, answered Legolas sadly. Then many of the elves of Nimrodal's kindred left their dwellings and departed, and she was lost far in the south in the passes of the White Mountains, and she came not to the ship where Amroth, her lover, waited for her. But in the spring, when the wind is in the new, uh, is in the new leaves, the echo of her voice may still be heard by the falls that bear her name. And when the wind is in the south, the voice of Amroth comes up from the sea, for Nimrodal flows into Silverlode that elves call Calibrant, and Calibrant into Anduin the Great, and Anduin flows into the Bay of Belphalas, whence the elves of Lorien set sail." But neither Nimrodal nor Amroth came ever back. It is told that she had a house built in the branches of a tree that grew near the falls, for that was the custom of the elves of Lorien to dwell in the trees, and maybe it is so still. Therefore they were called the Galathrim, the tree people. Deep in their forest the trees are very great. The people of the woods did not, did not delve in the ground like dwarves, nor build strong places of stone before the shadow came. And even in these latter days dwelling in the trees might be thought safer than sitting on the ground, said Gimli. He looked across the stream to the road that led back to Dimrald Dale and led up into the roof of dark boughs above. Your word brings good counsel, Gimli, said Aragorn. We cannot build a house, but tonight we will do as the Galathrim and seek refuge in the treetops if we can. We have sat here beside the road already longer than was wise. So what is the song that Legolas sings? We've had a couple of these already, of course had some introductory songs. We had a whole bushel full of Hobbit songs back in the early chapters of this book, from walking songs to, to bathing songs and everything in between. We know about Hobbits and we know about their songs. 
Then we got Gimli's song, and Gimli's song is very much in the tradition of dwarf songs. Here is ancient lore. I am going to tell you a story of my people, and it is going to be set in this this gorgeous kind of rhythm, and it is going to be enormously evocative and, and full of epic majesty. And basically, if you took Gimli's song and you made it like a vinyl album, the cover would look like the best and coolest heavy metal thing you've ever seen in your life, right? And the B-side would be you know, over the Misty Mountains cold or crack the nor- uh, <laughs> the Knives and Plates song back from The Hobbit. Um, <laughs> now I'm getting distracted by the YouTube chat again. Yes. Okay. Um, so we know about dwarves. We know about hobbits. We even know a little bit about man, but only a little bit. We're going to get a song later that's going to give us more on man. But this is our kind of introduction to the songs of not elves in general, of course, but Legolas's people, and Legolas in particular in this instance. Hey, here we are, fleeing from Moria, fleeing from orcs, fleeing from the death of our wizard dad. Here we are kind of lost and stranded, and we're going to Lothlorien, and we don't know if anyone's there, and we don't know if it's going to be safe, and we don't know if it's fallen under the shadow, and we don't know anything about anything at this point. But hey, let's splash across this river because it feels really good, you guys. And now that we've splashed across this river, let me sing you a song about a young woman who died somewhere in the mountains and her lover who threw himself from a boat because he couldn't find her. What is the purpose of this? What is Legolas doing here? This is not a tra-la-la-lolly song. This is not even a, hey, come sing with us and everything's going to be great, Elven song. This is something very different. This isn't even Elbereth Gilthoniel, right? This isn't even, you know, um, Arendelle was a mariner, which we, which Bilbo sang back in, in the halls of Elrond, which kind of has, you know, a, a related topic, I suppose. Um, this is something different. So why does Legolas sing this song? Well, Legolas sings this song, it seems to me, because of that essential, I'm almost tempted to say paradox, but it is not, in fact, a paradox. It is, it is innately resolvable. It is innately resolved in the elves. Elves are beautiful because they are tragic. Things are beautiful because they are tragic. Beauty comes from pain, from grief. This is why, you know, uh, well, okay, I'm running out of time and I don't have time to go all the way back to the Valor. Maybe we'll talk a little about this next week too. Um, but, But throughout Tolkien, you know, beauty and Pain, beauty, and grief, beauty, and and hardship, and tragedy, and heartache are completely intertwined. Not in that, you know, beautiful things are prone to hurt you or harm you, and not because pain will be transformed into beauty, but rather we need the entire breadth of, of our emotional response. Poignancy is what distinguishes the elves. And here at Legolas, even in this moment, having recently suffered grief, having recently suffered the loss of, of his wizard dad, is now going to sing about a young couple being separated by death. And he's going to sing this song because it is beautiful, because there is a joy and a wisdom contained within it. There is something of value contained in it because it is painful, because it is tragic. Exactly. Um, yeah. Yes, Jackie says this is a really nice beat of recovery for the company. Absolutely. And Shane says, even the sad stories of elves hold light and power for healing. I would argue, especially the sad stories of elves, right? It's it's not that it's not that this restoration comes in spite of the tragedy of Nimrodel's story, it comes because of the tragedy of Nimrodel's story. It is it is a beauty, it is a light that comes from darkness. 
right? That tension is, is necessary in elven culture and in elven storytelling. And here we see it again, perhaps more beautifully and more directly than we've seen since. And this is why Legolas calls out after he has sung the song, we get this explanation. Well, you know, maybe you didn't understand exactly what happened, but, you know, Nimrodal and Amroth were lost. And also it was pretty bad because an evil came from Khazad-dum, an evil came from the dark chasm of Moria and swept down into Lothlorien and people scattered to the winds and people, people fled and passed into the west, which is in inherently tragic in and of itself because they are gone now. They have left the world less than it was through their departure. Every time an elf leaves Middle-earth, the world is made smaller. It is less than it was. And Legolas observes this tragedy too. Evil came, he said sadly. And, and Gimli points out, ah, the evil was not of the dwarves making. And he said, no, come on, dude, no. But it came nonetheless. And then terrible things happened. But I'm telling you this because we are restored through it. This is key. This is vital. And we might be reminded of the fact that, that you know, the A.R. Endel song, for all that it is fantastic, for all that it is beautiful, is also kind of tragic. It's about a mortal who passes beyond the mortal realm and doesn't get to come back. Congratulations, you've made it to Valinor. Here's your new gig. You get to be the morning star forever. Here's a Silmaril for the prow of your ship. Off you go. You don't get your life back. You don't get to return to mortal realms. You don't get to die anymore. You just are this new thing. And this is part two, two of the uh, transformative aspect of fairy, which we're certainly going to discuss a lot more uh, next week. Okay, let's keep going because I have uh, one, two, three, four, five, six slides in 15 minutes. Let's see what we can do here. Um, <laughs> I was optimistic tonight, considering that there was a long song right in the middle. So this carries us on to Haldir. Welcome, the elf said again in the common language, speaking slowly. We seldom use any tongue but our own, for we dwell now in the heart of the forest and do not willingly have dealings with any other folk. Even our own kindred in the north are sundered from us. But there are some of us still who go abroad for the gathering of news and the watching of our enemies, and they speak the languages of other lands. I am one. Haldir is my name. My brothers Rumil and Orofin speak little of your tongue. But we have heard rumors of your coming, for the messengers of Elrond passed by Lorien on their way home up the Dimral Stair. We had not heard of hobbits, of halflings for many a long year and did not know that any yet dwelt in middle earth you do not look evil and since you come with an elf of our kindred we are willing to befriend you as elrond asked though it is not our custom to lead strangers through our land but you must stay here tonight how many are you eight said legolas myself four hobbits and two men one of whom aragorn is an elf friend of the folk of western s the name of aragorn son of arathorn is known in Lorien, said Haldir, and he has the favor of the lady. All then is well, but you have yet spoken only of seven. The eighth is a dwarf, said Legolas. A dwarf, said Haldir. That is not well. We have not had dealings with the dwarves since the dark days. They are not permitted in our land. I cannot allow him to pass. But he is from the Lonely Mountain, one of Dian's trusty people, and friendly to Elrond, said Frodo. Elrond himself chose him to be one of our companions, and he has been brave and faithful. The elves spoke together in soft voices and questioned Legolas in their own tongue. Very good, said Haldir at last. We shall do this even if it is against our liking. If Aragorn and Legolas will guard him and answer for him, he shall pass. 
but he must go blindfold through Lothlorien. But now we must debate no longer. Your folk must not remain on the ground. We have been keeping watch on the rivers ever since we saw a great troop of orcs going north toward Moria, along the skirts of the mountains many days ago. Wolves are howling on the woods' borders. If you have indeed come from Moria, the peril cannot be far behind. Tomorrow early you must go on. The four hobbits shall climb up here and stay with us. We do not fear them. There is another talon in the next tree. There, are, there the others must take refuge. You, Legolas, must answer to us for them. Call us if anything is amiss. And have an eye on that dwarf. Jennifer calls out, was hoping to slide Gimli in there on the sly, speaking of Legolas's approach, which I take to be a really interesting callback to the arrival of Thorin's company at Beorn's house. You remember when uh, Gandalf tells the story of the dwarves and introduces them one at a time, hoping that uh, Beorn will be so enchanted by the story that he won't question the arrival of this enormous and sprawling company into his home. I like that very much because you're right. Legolas kind of does the whole thing. Uh, okay, myself, uh, four hobbits, two men. Did I mention one of them was Aragorn, son of Arathorn, elf friend of the folk of Westerness, you know, heir to a silder, bearer of, you know, the sword that was broken and reforged. Cool. Is that fine? Oh, uh, and a dwarf. Now you mention it. That's, yeah, no problem. Yes. <laughs> you do not look evil, says Merging Puppy. Gee, thanks, Halder. You're talking about damning with faint praise, also kind of racist. I love that. I love that, uh, that beat there because no one has heard of hobbits. No one has heard of halflings. And he says, we have not heard of hobbits, of halflings for many a long year and did not know that any yet dwelt in Middle Earth. You do not look evil. What the hell does he know of hobbits? What the hell does he know of halflings? And then we remember. The one ring was lost in the Anduin at the Gladden Fields, not very far north of here. And it was found by Diegel and by Smeagol. They were hobbit-like creatures who lived presumably somewhere between the southern reaches of Mirkwood and the Misty Mountains. It might well be the case that Smeagol was not as exceptional as we thought he may be. It may be that the hobbits of this particular tribe of this particular culture, of this particular community, are actually somewhat less than great, actually somewhat less than charitable and avuncular. Wickedness in the Shire doesn't go very far. I mean, okay, the Shire is not idyllic. The Shire is not a perfect, you know, agrarian utopia. It's not. Hobbits are kind of awful. Sometimes they steal spoons and sometimes they sneak into Bag End to try and excavate the, the treasure that they've been told is hidden inside. And even then, if they don't do that, then they will sneak out the back of the party and come back in the front of the party in the hope of getting a second present. They're kind of, of greedy and venal and, and not always, you know, holier than thou, not always gooder than good. But they're not evil. So for me, it seems clear that Haldir is talking about the hobbits, the halflings, who once lived north of here, between the river Anduin, and probably around the Gladden Fields, between the river Anduin and the Misty Mountains themselves. Okay, we don't have a lot of time to talk about Haldir, but I do want to talk about, uh, about his role here, but we can do that next week. Um, let's move on here with uh, orcs. There were no more sounds. Even the leaves were silent, and the very falls seemed to be hushed. Frodo sat and shivered in his wraps. He was thankful that they had not been caught on the ground, but he felt that the trees offered little protection, except concealment. Orcs were as keen as hounds on the scent. 
It was said, but they could also climb. He drew out Sting. It flashed and glittered like a blue flame and then slowly faded again and grew dull. In spite of the fading of his sword, the feeling of immediate danger did not leave Frodo. Rather, it grew stronger. He got up and crawled to the opening and peered down. He was almost certain that he could hear stealthy movements at the tree's foot far below. Not elves, for the woodland folk were altogether noiseless in their movements. Then he heard faintly a sound like sniffing, and something seemed to be scrambling on the bark of the, tea tr of the tree trunk. He stared down into the dark, holding his breath. Something was now climbing slowly, and its breath came like a soft hissing through closed teeth. Then, coming up close to the stem, Frodo saw two pale eyes. They stopped and gazed upward, unwinking. Suddenly they turned away, and a shadowy figure slipped round the trunk of the tree and vanished. Immediately afterwards, Haldir came climbing swiftly up through the branches. "'There was something in this tree I have never seen before,' he said. "'It was not an orc.' It fled as soon as I touched the tree stem. It seemed to be wary and to have some skill in trees, or I might have thought it was one of you hobbits. I did not shoot, for I dared not arouse any cries. We cannot risk battle. A strong company of orcs has passed. They crossed the Nimrodale, cursed their foul feet in its clean water, and went on down the old road beside the river. They seemed to pick up some scent, and they searched the ground for a while near the place where you halted. The three of us could not challenge a hundred, so we went ahead and spoke with feigned voices, leading them on into the wood." Orofin has now gone back in haste, back to our dwellings to warn our people. None of the orcs will ever return out of Lorien, and there will be many elves hidden on the northern border before another night falls. But you must take the road south as soon as it is fully light. So the orcs have crossed the Nimrodale and crossed in force. I love how casual Haldir is about this. Yeah, there were quite a few and we couldn't really take them on. So we just made some sounds. We, we feigned some voices and led them on down the path. It's going to be fine. Many elves are going to be there. Those orcs will not return, return out of Lothlorien. By the way, there were a hundred of them. A hundred of them. It's fine. It's just even odds, three orcs against a hundred or uh, three uh, elves against a hundred orcs. Yes, and Jennifer's calling out exactly something I was thinking too. Sniffing is so triggering. Nothing good in the Lord of the Rings sniffs. This is great. And Jenna points out, we're so used to elves being super capable, but they can't catch Gollum. It's not much of a spoiler to say that this is Gollum here. Um, but the climbing of the tree, the pale figure, the scrabbling on the bark the soft hissing through closed teeth, the two pale eyes. All of this, I think, is designed to kind of evoke the Black Riders, but not really, because, of course, we can see this figure. He's a shadowy figure, but we can still see him. And the pale eyes, that's new. That's completely new for Frodo in his experience, yeah. Okay, so the orcs have passed. Gollum is still tracking Frodo. And we must push ever onward. Um, let me see here. Um, we are going to skip this slide. I, I will skip the slide. I, I included the slide only because I really liked it, but I'm running fast out of time and I have a hard out this evening. So uh, I'm going to skip the slide. This is the slide where they blindfold uh, Gimli and Aragorn says, no, actually blindfold all of us. This isn't really necessary, but I do love it. It's, it's pretty great. So the next slide. Also, said Haldir, this is when Haldir returns. They bring me a message from the Lord and Lady of the Galathrim. You are all to walk free, even the dwarf Gimli. It seems that the Lady knows who and what is each member of your company. New messages have come from Rivendell, perhaps. He removed the bandage first from Gimli's eyes. Your pardon, he said, bowing low. Look on us now with friendly eyes. Look and be glad, for you are the first dwarf to behold the trees of the Naeth of Lorien since Durin's day. When his eyes were in turn uncovered, Frodo looked up and caught his breath. 
They were standing in an open space. To the left stood a great mound, covered with a sward of grass as green as springtime in the elder days. Upon it, as a double crown, grew two circles of trees. The outer had bark of snowy white, and was leafless but beautiful in their shapely nakedness. The inner were malorn trees of great height, still arrayed in pale gold. High amid the branches of a towering tree that stood in the center of all, there gleamed a white flat. At the feet of the trees, and all about the green hillsides, the grass was studded with small golden flowers shaped like stars. Among them, nodding on slender stalks, were other flowers, white and palest green. They glimmered as a mist amid the rich hue of the grass. Over all, the sky was blue, and the sun of the afternoon glowed upon the hill and cast long green shadows beneath the trees. Behold, you are come to Karen Amroth, said Hollier. For this is the heart of the ancient realm as it was long ago, and here is the mound of Amroth, where in happier days his high house was built. Here ever bloom the winter flowers and the unfading grass, the yellow Eleanor and the pale Nifredel. Here we will stay a while, and come to the city of the Galathrim at dusk. Jenna's calling out here in the YouTube chat how great it is that uh, Haldir apologizes to Gimli. She says, I also love how the elves treat Gimli once they get the okay from the higher-ups. There's no derision. They treat him with as much respect as possible. I love that too. Your pardon. Look on us now with friendly eyes. Look and be glad for you are the first dwarf to behold the trees of the Naeth of Lorien since Durin's day. This is, yeah, this is pretty good. This is just pretty good, you guys. So this is the, this is Karen Amroth. This is Amroth's Mound, named, of course, for Amroth of the Nimrodell poem. This is where his high house was constructed. So we remember that Amroth was king of the Galathrim. He was king of Lothlorien, and this is where his house was. And now is no longer. There is a tall tree in the middle of, of Karen Amroth, and it has a flat, this, this flat platform bound around it. But that's it. What happened to the great house of Karen Amroth? What happened to Amroth's great house? Well, we're going to talk about that as we move into next week, because you guys, Lothlorien is not all that it seems to be. Let's uh, push on and take a look here at, at our better description. The others cast themselves down on the fragrant grass, but Frodo stood, stood a while, still lost in wonder. It seemed to him that he had stepped through a high window that looked on a vanished world. A light was upon it for which his language had no name. All that he saw was shapely, but the shapes seemed at once clear-cut, as if they had been first conceived and drawn at the uncovering of his eyes, and ancient, as if they had endured forever. He saw no color but those he knew— gold and white and blue and green, but they were fresh and poignant, as if he had at that moment first perceived them and made for them names new and wonderful. In winter here, no heart could mourn for summer or for spring. No blemish or sickness nor deformity could be seen in anything that grew upon the earth. On the land of Lorien, there was no stain. He turned and saw that Sam was now standing beside him, looking round with a puzzled expression and rubbing his eyes as if he were not sure that he were awake. It's sunlight and bright day, right enough, he said. I thought the elves were awful moon and stars, but this is more elvish than anything I heard tell of. I feel as if I were inside a song, if you take my meaning. Haldir looked at them, and he seemed indeed to take the meaning of both thought and word. He smiled. You feel the power of the Lady of the Galathrim, he said. Would it please you to climb with me up Karen Amroth? They followed him as he stepped lightly up the grass-clad slopes. 
Though he walked and breathed, and about him living leaves and flowers were stirred by the same cool wind as fanned his face, Frodo felt that he was in a timeless land that did not fade or change or fall into forgetfulness. When he had gone and passed again into the outer world, still Frodo, the wanderer from the Shire, would walk there, upon the grass, among Eleanor and Nifredal, in fair Lothlorien. This is such a gorgeous passage here. Eleanor is a Sindarin word meaning star sun, these little golden flowers, these little star-shaped flowers. Nifredel, rather brilliantly, translates directly as snowdrops. Do you have snowdrops here in the United States? I guess I'd never paused to consider whether that was possible. I'm sure that you do, right? I'm sure that's a horribly patronizing thing for, for someone from across the Atlantic to say, but I'm not sure that I've ever seen snowdrops here in the United States. But they are gorgeous, little little thin, elegant green stems with a little white bell-shaped flower, just just lovely and a great sign of the coming of spring. So Eleanor and Nifredel, star sun and snowdrops. But here already we are getting the sense that something is not right. Immediately we get the sense of renewal, right? And as Shane's calling out, a beautiful thought that they stay here even when they leave. This is timeless. This exists outside of the frame of the world. But places ought not to exist outside of the frame of the world. A light was upon it for which his language had no name. All that he saw was shapely, but the shape seemed at once clear-cut as if they had been first conceived and drawn at the uncovering of his eyes, and ancient as if they had endured forever. He saw no color but those he knew, gold and white and blue and green, but they were fresh and poignant, as if he had at that moment first perceived them and made for them names new and wonderful. This, in part, I think, speaks to Tolkien's idea of restoration, one of the one of the consolations of fantasy fiction, one of the reasons that we turn to stories in general, is exactly this kind of restoration. By being immersed in a new world, we see again without familiarity, without, you know, the jaded occlusion of our senses, without exhaustion, we see as if for the first time, as Frodo is seeing, as if for the first time. But already we get the sense that something here isn't quite right. In winter here, no heart could mourn for summer or for spring. No blemish or sickness or deformity could be seen in anything that grew upon the earth. On the land of Lorien, there was no stain. This is perfect. But it is an unnatural kind of perfection. And as Haldir says, you feel the power of the Lady of the Galathrim. Something here is not quite right. We'll talk more about that next week. But first, we have to move on to our final passage and our cap here on our, um, on our uh, bracketing of, of tonight's reading. Another farewell. At the hill's foot, Frodo found Aragorn, standing still and silent as a tree, but in his hand was a small golden bloom of Eleanor, and a light was in his eyes. He was wrapped in some fair memory, and as Frodo looked at him, he knew that he beheld things as they once had been in this same place, for the grim years were removed from the face of Aragorn, and he seemed clothed in white, a young lord, tall and fair, and he spoke words in the elvish tongue to one whom Frodo could not see. Arwen, Vanamelda, Namarie, he said. And then he drew a breath, and returning out of his thought, he looked at Frodo and smiled. Here is the heart of Elvendom on earth, he said, and here my heart dwells ever, unless there be a light beyond the dark roads that we still must tread, you and I. Come with me. And taking Frodo's hand in his, he left the hill of Karen Amroth, 
and came there never again as living man. Arwen Valdemelda Namarier, excuse me, my Alvin is not as good as it should be. Arwen Valdemelda Namarier translates as uh, fair and beloved Arwen, beautiful and beloved Arwen, farewell. He's saying goodbye to Arwen, with whom he is in love. And this doesn't even come from the Legendarium. This is actually in Appendix A of uh, of The Lord of the Rings. I think it's section, gosh, section five of Appendix A of The Lord of the Rings. In the year 2980 of the Third Age, 38 years ago, as of this visit, Aragorn and Arwen, the daughter of Elrond, visited Karen Amroth and plighted their troth. They became engaged to be married here. And Aragorn here is remembering that. Uh, he seemed clothed in white, a young lord, tall and fair, and he spoke words in the elvish tongue to one whom Frodo could not see. Fair and beloved Arwen, farewell. It's a pretty great moment, particularly when we turn toward darkness there. Again and again throughout this chapter, and particularly next week's chapter two, we are going to hint that something here is not right, that there is a darkness underlying the perfection of Lothlorien, and that the darkness and the perfection of Lothlorien are not separated, but are in fact one and the same thing. Taking Frodo's hand in his, he's happy here, right? He returns out of his thought. He looks at Frodo and he smiles. Here is the heart of Elvendom on earth. I spent my entire childhood at Rivendell. It's pretty great there. My girlfriend, excuse me, my fiancé lives there. It's brilliant. But this is the heart of Elvendom. This is the most elven place in all of Middle-earth. And here my heart dwells ever. Unless there be a light beyond the dark roads that we still must tread, you and I. Come with me. And taking Frodo's hand in his, he left the hill of Karen Amroth. And that's the end of the chapter, and it's a super happy ending to the chapter. Oh, no, wait, there is another little passage, a little supplemental thought there. And came never again as living man. Here my heart dwells ever. But Aragorn is never going to return here. This is not his life. He is never going to return to the heart of Elvendom, which is heartbreaking. Yeah. Yes, um, Jackie says, I think I feel like he's saying goodbye to the memory of their encounter here. He has to focus on the road ahead, not like he's turning her aside or anything. Oh, it's interesting that you interpret it like that. I don't, um, gosh, I don't actually read this as him saying farewell to Arwen at all. He's so enraptured in the memory, right? Um, For the grim years were removed from the face of Aragorn. He seemed clothed in white as he was at the time, a young lord, tall and fair, and he spoke words in the elvish tongue to one whom Frodo could not see. For me, this is proof that he is... He is reliving this memory. He is here with his flower. He's remembering everything as though it were happening to him right now. This, this plighting of troth, this, this, this dedication of his heart to Arwen and the, the reciprocal receipt of her heart and troth, her, you know, her love. To me, he is reliving this memory powerfully. And Frodo interrupts, Frodo witnesses the very end of the memory. He witnesses the moment at which Aragorn and Arwen turned away from one another 38 years ago to, to, you know, live their lives, to do their things. Having said, yes, I am for you and you are for me. Fair and beloved Arwen, farewell. So I don't read this as, as Aragorn turning away from Arwen in the present at all. I think he's remembering this, this memory very fondly, but certainly, you know, it, it may be something else. Yeah, yeah. 
Oh, Jackie says, no, she didn't either. She didn't read it that way either, but I've heard people react to it that way. Yeah, it never struck me that that was how we were supposed to interpret this. I see this as a very, very positive thing. Because if it's not a positive thing, if there's anything bittersweet in this memory or in this in this experience, if he is somehow bidding farewell, because we uh, part of it relies on the parsing of that line, right? Here's the heart of Elvin on earth, and here my heart dwells ever, unless there be a light beyond the dark roads that we still must tread, you and I. You and I, Frodo, there are dark paths that we must tread. What is he talking about? He's talking about the, the paths of death. He's talking about the journey that they will take after they die. He's not talking about this immediate quest, because if... If they should falter and fail, if the shadow should should overtake the world, well, you know, whatever happens to them, there's no reason that his heart still can't reside here in this place with this memory. That can't be taken from him. Here my heart dwells ever, unless there be a light beyond the dark roads that we still must tread, you and I, you and me, Frodo, we are mortal. We are going to die. We are going to go someplace else. And I want to see that light at the other side. And then taking Frodo's hand in his, a gesture that is both, uh, that is both companionable, but also kingly. Taking Frodo's hand is an intimate gesture that would not be appropriate for Boromir, for example, right? Boromir should not be taking Frodo's hand. It would be, it would be intrusive. It would be overly familiar for Boromir to take Frodo's hand, I feel. But Aragorn can take his hand because Aragorn, well, he's the king and that's worth something. But if there were a bittersweet turn here, if we were supposed to be thinking, oh, this is so sad, Aragorn's saying goodbye to Arwen because he knows he's never going to see her again, even if that were true, then the turn at the end would be less powerful and came there never again as a living man. I think in order for that last beat to have its most potent significance, its most poignant significance, we have to look at, at Aragorn's memory as a positive one. <laughs> and Mickey says, yeah, because Boromir would take his ring. Yeah, and glad Rebecca points out Aragorn is the King Dad. That's great. So we have Wizard Dad and King Dad, the adventures of Wizard Dad and King Dad, and that is going to do it. I have run almost 10 minutes over time, and that's with skipping a slide. You guys, in fact, I still have one more slide to show you because next week we're going to switch up the schedule a little bit. Uh, I have some, some demands upon my time next Thursday, but rather than skip a week, I wanted to take the opportunity to reschedule there and back again into the afternoon hours. You're going to be joining me at 3 p.m. Eastern next week for a discussion of chapters 7 and 8 of the second book of The Fellowship of the Ring. Well, we are rapidly approaching the end of The Fellowship of the Ring, you guys. We're going to discuss chapters 7 and 8, The Mirror of Galadriel, and Farewell to Lorien. That will take place at 3 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Central, next Thursday, September the 14th, 2017. That is going to do it for tonight. Guys, it has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for, for sticking with me through this headlong, reckless barreling through, through the material tonight. It has been a joyous and wild ride, and I'm sure I'm going to have much more to say. And as I said, if you have any questions about elves, sir, then get in touch, because I may well do a quick primer on elves right at the start of next week's session. I think it is probably time that we talked about the difference between Gosh, all the various elves, light elves and dark elves and forest elves and high elves and so on and so forth. We'll get to all of that. So if you have specific questions or if you have specific characters in whom you're interested, get in touch and let me know and I'll, I'll try and put together a primer before we move into the Mirror of Galadriel and one of the greatest chapters in The Lord of the Rings. We'll hit all of that next week. It has been an absolute pleasure. Take care, have fun, and I'll talk to you all again soon. Until then, take care.